Welcome to Series 3 of the Saltwater Strategist, the podcast that delves into the complex world of maritime security in the Indo-Pacific region. I'm your host, Jen Parker. As the world becomes increasingly dependent on maritime trade, it's critical that we understand the challenges and opportunities in this competitive environment. Our well-respected guests, strategists, academics and international relations and maritime professionals from across the region provide insightful and considered discussion on the most pressing maritime issues in the Indo-Pacific. The Saltwater Strategist is a product of the Australian Naval Institute, a non-profit self-supporting organisation that encourages the promotion and advancement of knowledge related to the maritime profession. This episode of the Saltwater Strategist is also proudly brought to you by the organisers of the Australia ASEAN Summit, occurring in March 24, commemorating 50 years of Australia as a dialogue partner of ASEAN. 2024 is shaping up to be a big year for maritime affairs in Australia. Nationally, the outcome of Australia's 2023 Surface Combatant Fleet Review are expected to be known. Australia's inaugural National Defence Strategy is also due to be released. And internationally, maritime affairs and the significance of sea power continue to remain front and centre with the Houthi attacks on shipping in the Red Sea continuing, evidence of a rise in piracy in the Western Indian Ocean, and tensions in Northeast Asia and the South China Sea are likely to continue. And of course, the Australian Naval Institute's saltwater strategists will be here to discuss all these issues and more. Something that is likely not widely known, 2024 also marks the 50th anniversary of Australia having become ASEAN's first dialogue partner. In commemoration of this anniversary, Australia will host a special summit in March to celebrate its relationship with ASEAN. And one of the key areas of this summit will be looking at maritime opportunities and challenges in Southeast Asia. In honour of Australia's 50th year anniversary as a dialogue partner with ASEAN, the first three episodes of Series 3 of the Saltwater Strategist will focus on maritime challenges and opportunities in Southeast Asia, chatting with a number of the experts who will be speaking at the summit. Today, we are lucky enough to be joined by Professor Beck Stratton. Beck is no stranger, of course, to the Saltwater Strategist listeners. Beck is the Director of La Trobe Asia. She is a non-visiting fellow at the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, amongst a number of other affiliations. Impressively, Beck has two books coming out this year. One, she is a co-author of Girt by Sea, Reimagining Australia's Security with Professor Joanne Wallace, which is due to be released in 2024 and is also the co-editor of Blue Security Maritime Strategies of the Indo-Pacific. So she's the perfect person to open the Saltwater Strategist Series 3 today. Beck, thanks for being on. Thanks so much for having me, Jen. So Beck, I guess looking at 2023, which for Australia, you know, I would term potentially a little bit of a maritime awakening and looking forward to 2024, One of the things I think about with Australia is this constant critique of maritime professionals and academics that Australia is a nation that is sea blind. But increasingly, I get a sense that that is potentially changing. Throughout 2023, maritime issues in the Pacific, Southeast Asia and the wider Indo-Pacific have increasingly entered the mainstream discourse. In 2023, we saw several maritime issues that entered the public debate, from China's aggressive behaviour towards the Philippines and the West Philippine Sea, to cyber attacks on one of Australia's two largest port operators, DP World. Of course, we're seeing ongoing issues in the Red Sea, where Houthi terrorists are attacking innocent seafarers. And in November last year, we saw quite aggressive behaviour from a Chinese destroyer towards HMAS Toowoomba, injuring two Royal Australian Navy divers. Do you get a sense that this label of Australia as a sea-blind country is starting to change? 
Yeah, I think that is a really interesting and valid observation. I mean, there has been this perception when we talk about sort of sea blindness that Australians, they don't really look beyond the coast, like we're a very kind of beachy, coastal nation. And when it comes to how the Australian nation has been crafted, it's often land wars that have been commemorated rather than thinking about like naval battles. And we've also, you know, as a country tended to get bogged down in big land wars as well, which has sort of taken the focus away from perhaps the importance of the Navy and naval capabilities in securing Australia. But I think you're right. When defence is focused on Australia, its geography, our neighbourhood, we inevitably have to think more about the sea. Australia, it has extensive maritime domain and jurisdiction. We're surrounded by the Indian Ocean, Southern Ocean, Pacific Ocean. We've got the world's third largest exclusive economic zone. It's kind of impossible not to think about the importance of the sea when it comes to securing Australia's national interests. But more generally, and I think that's always kind of been the case that, you know, you could see that obviously the sea is important. But I think we can see this movement away from sea blindness in a number of ways. First is this adoption of the Indo-Pacific regional concept from around 2012. This is when the Indo-Pacific started to become the way that Australia viewed uh, its strategic neighbourhood in official policy documents and declaratory policy. And Australia has been, you know, we, we might call Australia a norm entrepreneur in the sense that it was an early adopter of the Indo-Pacific regional concept and it has played a fairly significant role in spreading that idea of the region to the rest of the world. And the most sort of significant for me, the most significant thing about the Indo-Pacific or the most important part about it is that it is a maritime concept, right? It is one that seeks to bridge the Indian Ocean and the Pacific Ocean and there is a really strong geographic rationale for doing that for Australia. But we also see more of a focus on maritime interests in thinking about the role that maritime disputes have played in Australia's threat perception how it perceives the changing balance of power, how it thinks about how regional order is changing as well. So what I mean by that is the maritime disputes in the South China Sea have been really central in how Australia thinks about and worries about what China might be doing in the region. It's the key example that is used of Chinese revisionism, this idea that China might be seeking to challenge the rules-based order, and that's the term that lots of officials like to use in Australia, that the China wants to challenge the rules-based order and that this is best displayed in its actions in the South China Sea, but also East China Sea, Taiwan Strait. And so the maritime plays that really important role in how Australian decision-makers and important observers and, and influencers perceive regional order and the future of the region. And then the other sort of, I think, thing that points to uh, this idea that Australia is less sea-blind is, of course, the 2023 Defence Strategic Review. And if I recall correctly, I think after that was
was released, I actually came on the podcast and we talked about the importance of the maritime in that document, this kind of grappling with Australia's maritime geography. But of course, it's all very well and good to say that we are thinking much more about the importance of the maritime and naval capabilities. And of course, AUKUS is a significant part of this conversation. But there is also the issue of resources as a middle-sized state. Where are governments and decision makers going to? What areas are they going to prioritise? What capabilities are they going to invest in? And I know, Jen, you've been writing a lot on this. There seems to be, you know, a real emphasis on AUKUS and nuclear-powered submarines. But there are all of these other issues around naval workforce and also what other kinds of capabilities Australia might invest in. On that comment in terms of the increasing prevalence of the maritime discourse, I think that can only be positive for trying to unpack a lot of these resourcing issues. You know, as you mentioned, you know, Australia as a, as a middle power is constrained in many ways, whether that be workforce, whether that be funding. There are a lot of opportunity cost discussions that we need to have. And I've been thinking about that recently in terms of that framework of the Indo-Pacific. You know, something that has really struck me is, you know, Australia is certainly an early proponent of the Indo-Pacific, certainly highlighting the maritime connectivity of the region. But interestingly, you know, when Australia talks about the Indo-Pacific, we're less focused on maritime security threats in the West Indian Ocean region. Yep. And something that for a number of years we've been able to do because the threats haven't been things that directly impacted our maritime security. So obviously significant concern about IUU fishing, the impacts of climate change, etc., in the Western Indian Ocean. But with the rise again of piracy or what looks like Somali piracy in the Gulf of Aden, in the Western Indian Ocean, and also the Houthi attacks in the Red Sea, but not only the Red Sea, also the Gulf of Aden, you know, butting right up against the Indian Ocean. Do you think we need to rethink our framing of the Indo-Pacific from a maritime perspective and, and be thinking towards the Western Indian Ocean? Yeah, it's a really interesting set of arguments. I've been following this closely over the last couple of months, and I know, Jen, you've been quite active in the public discourse around the the Houthi attacks. And to be honest, I'm in two minds, which is why I've not contributed. I'm still sort of thinking my way through this because, on the one hand, you were right. The Indo-Pacific concept that Australia adopts is not the same as what other states uh, have adopted. And so, you know, the boundaries Boundaries actually really do matter for what states then prioritise and what they see as being kind of integral to their national interests. And we cut off sea lanes in our conception. If sea lanes are the kind of the vital connective tissue that makes the Indo-Pacific so important as a kind of region where there's all of this interconnectivity between the Indian and the Pacific Oceans, it doesn't then make much sense to me that we cut off those vital sea lanes in the way that we conceptualise our interests. On the other hand, you know, there is a really strong rationale, I think, for Australia's defence priorities to be closer to home. Because what I would like to sort of avoid is Australia jumping into regions that it doesn't necessarily have a strong 
understanding of. You know, we're talking about an area that's not all that close to Australia in the Middle East. And there are risks, I think, in merely trying to use force, whether it's, you know, uh, non-state actors or terrorist groups or militia groups and going along with other states in using sort of military force and sending ships out into these regions if we don't necessarily have a strong idea of what the political dynamics are in that region. So I guess what I'm saying is that these are things that should be weighed up carefully and from a maritime perspective, it doesn't make much sense to stop the part of Australia's Indo-Pacific conception at India. And it should, if it was more coherent, it should be extended across over to the Western Indian Ocean as well. But that doesn't necessarily mean that Australia should always get involved in things if there isn't a strong understanding of the political dynamics on the ground. No, look, I completely agree. It's a really difficult challenge. Although, I must say, I was heartened. I was, um, I was recently uh, in Tanzania, as you know. When I arrived, somebody mentioned to me the last time they remember an Australian ship being in Tanzania, which was uh, HMAS Darwin, my old ship, not a ship I was on at the time. But I think it is a challenge. We do have some familiarity in that region, but we also have a lot of capability constraints as well that we need to balance. That's right. And we have a lot of challenges, I think, just within the Pacific Ocean region and Southeast Asia. And these two regions, even though we talk about this big Indo-Pacific, it still strikes me that the South Pacific and Southeast Asia and Western Pacific, they really do remain kind of the core of Australia's defence thinking and and defence planning. No, we do. And speaking of some of those challenges in the, in, I guess, our more immediate regions, I guess, you know, we've mentioned that 2023 was quite a big year for maritime issues. How do you think 2024 is shaping up? And what do you think will be some of the largest maritime issues impacting Australia and some of the more significant debates? I think the maritime seems to be getting only more important. (laughs) Every year it seems to be like there are new sets of issues and new sets of challenges or they're sort of, you know, the, the trajectory is that some of these challenges are intensifying or becoming more regular. And I think 2024, it'll be no different. We've talked about the Red Sea, for example. I mean, I think we're all watching that carefully because of the implications of maritime piracy. And, you know, that also gets to the point that it's not always states versus states when we think about maritime security. A lot of maritime security challenges that states are facing, particularly across our region, are more civil in nature. You know, we're talking about threats that are presented by non-state actors or by actors that are not necessarily militaries. Uh, And this creates a kind of range of issues for states that may have different capabilities and capacities to secure maritime jurisdiction. That's, I think, always going to be a kind of fundamental issue across the Indo-Pacific. But I'll be focused, I think, on what's going on in the seas of East Asia. 
South China Sea, East China Sea, Taiwan Strait. Of course, we saw elections in Taiwan earlier this year and the DPP has been re-elected and this is the party that is probably the most stridently concerned about China in Taiwan. And so, you know, Taiwan's new president, William Lai, will be inaugurated in May. So I'll be watching about what China does in response to that because there are obvious implications for a Taiwan Strait and for Taiwan and the Taiwanese. But then you've got this kind of other issue when it comes to China's maritime assertions in East Asia, whether or not China's economic growth issues are going to have an effect on its maritime activities. Will it be preoccupied? Will the Xi Jinping regime be preoccupied with these issues? Or will it sort of seek to use some of these more aggressive grey zone tactics in maritime areas as a kind of way of showing strength to the domestic audience or shoring up a sense of maritime nationalism or domestic legitimacy through this? So that's one thing that I'm wondering what will happen. Is China's attitude or approach to the seas of East Asia but wrapped up in a broader kind of concern about what China is doing in the region. And then there's always this sort of this issue of the pace of incidents at sea and in the airspace above them, you know, military and non-military vessels and planes coming into contact with each other, whether this is increasing. It certainly seems like there is an increase in these sort of unprofessional and unsafe manoeuvres. And these are important because you don't always know what could spark a conflict or could, you know, escalate into something bigger, particularly when we're talking about US and Chinese planes kind of coming into contact with each other. Then there's a range of issues, I think, that we need to keep an eye on, whether it's debates about resources like deep sea mining, for example, in the Pacific, or whether it's attacks on maritime infrastructure like submarine cables, for example. The umbrella of maritime security is so vast that there is always so much to try and keep track of. But I'm also always on the lookout. This is me trying to be a little bit more optimistic, Jen. Always on the lookout for moments of resolution because Southeast Asia isn't just a region where there are these flashpoints and points of high tension between China and and Southeast Asian neighbours. It's also an area where states get together to try to resolve maritime boundary disputes or attempt to use measures under UNCLOS in order to try to, you know, establish and maintain maritime order. So it's not always bad news all the time, but certainly I'm most interested, I think, in what China is going to do this year. And you are right. It's not always bad news all the time. You know, I um, think, you know, in the last 24 hours, Vietnam and the Philippines have reached agreement on two MOUs uh, relating to maritime issues, Coast Guards working together and things like that. And, you know, I look back to 2022 when the Philippines and Indonesia reached a pretty significant boundary agreement with respect to their claims under UNCLOS. So you're right, there are lots of positive things You know, in terms of China's approach to both the Taiwan elections and their illegal 
interventions in the Philippine EEZ. It has been interesting to see in the last couple of months that their approach has been, well, certainly from my perspective, toned down compared to where it had been kind of early to mid last year. And, you know, from a Taiwan Strait perspective, there was a lot of anticipation that following the election, there would be a lot more incursions over the median line in the Taiwan Strait. And and there's been lots of people kind of amping that up. But I think really, since Pelosi's visit in 22, we did see increased and regular daily incursions over the median line. But actually, since the election, we haven't seen that much from the military. And certainly, you know, I I laughed a little bit. There was a a Global Times article that said, respect to the West Philippine Sea, that it had allowed the Philippines to resupply the Sierra Madre on 2nd Thomas Shoal, obviously, you know, subject to the 2016 Arbitral Tribunal, the Second Thomas Shoal is very clearly under international law part of the Philippines EUZ. But I am sensing, at least temporarily, a slightly different approach from China compared to some of the peaks last year where there was real concern that there might be something that would spark a wider conflict. Yeah, and that is an important observation. But I think if we look over the kind of longer track of South China Sea over the last decade or the last 15 years, you do see that it is a bit up and down. It's kind of like testing boundaries, right? Like it's not always escalating at the same pace all the time. It's an oscillation, I think, between diplomacy and between more aggressive activities in the South China Sea. The Taiwan Strait is interesting. I think from my understanding, after the election, there were some incursions and there hadn't been since November. But there is possibly a sense in which mainland China doesn't want to provoke Taiwanese to really despise the PRC. And so, you know, the response was perhaps not as forceful as many were expecting because, you know, ultimately I think China's strategy in Taiwan is about getting the Taiwanese to a point where they will kind of surrender themselves rather than mainland China needing to invade necessarily. So, I mean, that's just on my behalf a bit of sort of speculation that when it comes to Taiwan, the Xi Jinping administration needs to be, I think, concerned somewhat with public opinion in Taiwan. And the testing of the the kind of the boundaries, the grey zone, all of these sorts of activities that China is engaged with in, in the South and the East China Sea as well, they can't just throw out the idea that China needs some legitimacy, right? So, Even though great powers, you know, there's this image, I think particularly realists in international relations tend to see great powers as being able to do what they want and be able to sort of boss around and bully smaller states. I think there is actually an awareness that legitimacy matters and that's why you get this kind of back and fro. So it's an interesting one to keep an eye out for, but I wouldn't necessarily see that that trend towards putting the brakes on some of those grey zone activities will be a long-term trend. But I hope it is. Yes, I would certainly agree. You know, it's unlikely to be a long-term trend, but uh, it's certainly uh, been a pleasant surprise, I think, in the last couple of months. Absolutely. 
I guess moving now, you know, I mentioned in the introduction to this podcast that we have the ASEAN Australia Special Summit coming up in March. Thankfully, this podcast is sponsored by the organisers of that summit, representing 50 years of Australia being a dialogue partner to ASEAN. What do you think will be some of the key discussions and some of the key themes of that summit coming up in March? Well, the key themes, I mean, there's four. So there's maritime security, there's the blue economy, there's environment, and then there's international law. And I think those themes really reflect the concerns of Australia and Southeast Asian nations. We've also got to remember, I mean, Southeast Asia is a diverse region. They do not have the same maritime interests. You know, they're not all even sort of maritime countries in a way. And some of them are on the front line of China's assertions in in the South China Sea, for example. Others are much closer to China and are not having to deal with that particular set of issues. And so that complicates the idea that there is one set of maritime interests that Southeast Asia as a region holds. But I think they're all to some degree interested in particularly shoring up civil maritime security, being able to defend their maritime jurisdictions, having rights under UNCLOS being sort of preserved, economy is obviously important for maritime Southeast Asian states. The environment is something that perhaps gets less attention than the big geopolitical issues, but there are lots of environmental issues that relate to maritime domains in Southeast Asia. And there's also a lot of opportunity for states to collaborate a lot more on these environmental challenges, whether it's to do with climate change and rising sea levels, or whether it's to do with mitigating the challenges around plastics and pollution. These are really important issues for marine environment and one that I think Australia could contribute a lot to. Coral bleaching, for example, is important issue across the region. And then, of course, international law. Australia has a lot of really well-credentialed international lawyers. And Jen, I know that you've got a law background yourself. And so that is one way that Australia and Southeast Asian states can come together is to build these understandings of what states' rights and entitlements are under UNCLOS and some of the diplomatic and legal ways and resources that states have to build a maritime order and to ensure their rights under international law. I think there's some interesting points you raised there. You know, I think in Australia, we often, when we look to Southeast Asia and the maritime security challenges there, we think immediately in terms of what's been happening between China and the Philippines. When we look further north to the East China Sea and the Taiwan Strait, we think about what's been happening between China and Taiwan. But actually, you know, I um, I wish I could remember who did it, but I, I read a survey last year, actually, that interviewed maritime professionals from a number of countries in Southeast Asia and on what they thought were their biggest challenges. 
you know, and the points you raise, environment, utilising the blue economy and understanding how to get the most from that, irregular migration, i.e. fishing, maritime terrorism, they actually seem to rate higher for a number of the countries than the things that, you know, Australia seems to be thinking about as the larger concerns in the region. So I, I think that's a, an interesting point to bring out in terms of the, the perspectives there. And I think there's a couple of ways of, of thinking about that. The first is, you know, that Australia should engage with Southeast Asian countries, particularly those maritime countries, based on what their priorities and interests are, because that will, I guess, promote a sense of goodwill and a sense in which, you know, it might help develop and build those bilateral and multilateral relations between Australia and Southeast Asia, which Australia might come to rely on as the balance of power shifts in Asia. But then the second sort of way of thinking about that is much less sort of transactional, and that is that the environment, economy, human security, these are all maritime security issues that are significant in their own right, uh, and that Australia should be thinking about just as much as what it thinks about the sort of challenges that China poses to Australia's national security interests and to regional security. So that's really a sense in which we don't want, well, from my perspective, I don't want Australia sort of engaging on some of these other maritime security issues just as a way to try to balance against China, but as a recognition that security means much more than geopolitics, particularly, or, or military versus military, particularly in these vital maritime domains. You know, and also there is a lot of commonality of, of maritime security threats there that Australia is also experiencing as well. Absolutely. You know, you mentioned environmental issues like coral bleaching. If I think about, you know, Australia's largest maritime operations in the last six months, actually it was uh, dealing with illegal fishing to the northwest over the Christmas period where maritime border command surged forces. So there is a lot of commonality of those threats and concerns and how they impact Australia. Talking more about uh, Australia's engagement in Southeast Asia, certainly since 2017 and uh, the inception of Indo-Pacific Endeavour, which I was lucky enough to be on the 2017 inaugural Indo-Pacific Endeavour, Australia's moved a lot towards using naval diplomacy and enacting the concept of soft power in the region to try and develop those relationships. How do you think Australia's soft power approach, especially from a naval diplomacy perspective, has evolved recently? Well, yeah, I mean, I think IPE, Indo-Pacific Endeavour, as you mentioned, is an important part of Australia's evolution in naval diplomacy. I've also been lucky enough to be on IPE a couple of times. And it's a really interesting example of trying to blend the kind of hard power with the soft power. And in its sort of ideal vision, you know, it's a whole of government, all of the military approach to promoting Australia in the region and presenting Australia as this kind of ideal partner of choice. And that partner of choice language, I mean, I find it a little bit 
problematic in some ways because it's like, well, it's obviously, well, what are the other choices, right? Like it seems to lean into this idea of that it's a zero-sum game and that states are going to have to choose between, say, China and and US and Australia, Ella's on the other hand. And that is not, I think, a narrative that actually plays very well in Southeast Asia because, you know, a lot of these states are hedges and the language that they use is that they don't want to have to choose. But nevertheless, like, you know, the the Indo-Pacific endeavour, it has its really strong points in that it makes Australia very visible in the region. It demonstrates this commitment to the region and it tends to move around year on year. You know, sometimes it's the Pacific that's more focused or sometimes they go out into the Indian Ocean. Southeast Asia, I think, tends to be, you know, a sort of consistent part of Indo-Pacific endeavour every year. But it's trying to, I think, use the capabilities in order to enhance those relationships across the region. The issue that I kind of have with it is, Jen, maybe you know this, I don't know whether there's been any research done on this, but what the kind of response of Southeast Asian elites or you know, strategic elites or decision makers, what their response is to the IPE? I mean, is it viewed as this kind of diplomatic effort, you know, because there's activities that take place on this, you know, there are things like, you know, sort of humanitarian activities, for example, that try to connect IPE with local communities, or is there a sense in which this is kind of gumboat diplomacy and that there might be a bit of a an image issue with sending a flotilla of naval vessels through waters that some of these states see as being their own backyard. So, I mean, Jen, I don't know whether you've seen any sort of research on on the responses, regional responses to the IPE, but it kind of like something that I, I was thinking about the last time I was on it is it wasn't really clear to me how you can measure the effectiveness of some of these naval diplomacy strategies. And it's a really tricky line to walk, I think, in using naval capabilities for diplomatic ends. It is. And, you know, I think it's difficult to say. I, I certainly haven't seen any research into it, although I think it would be a really interesting research topic. Certainly during my time on IPE, I was second in command of a couple of ships, so I was very busy about getting the ship there. So it's not something <laughs> I turned my mind to. But I must say, you know, I was in Jakarta recently um, at an ASEAN dialogue supported by the Australian government, and certainly anecdotally the conversations had with me were more about, you know, the presence is actually significantly appreciated, especially by a number of states that don't have capabilities akin to Australia. But on your point that you mentioned earlier in terms of the hedging strategy of a number of Southeast Asian nations and that awkward conversation about choices, that's something that doesn't resonate well. Mm. And I I look forward to picking up that conversation actually in our next podcast. Uh, We're lucky enough to have a couple of guests coming on from prominent think tanks in Southeast Asia to really delve into that. And I'll put the question to them. Now, just turning to a slightly different topic, but um, I'm really excited to Hopefully uh, get a copy, maybe a signed copy of your upcoming <laughs> book, Girt by Sea, Reimagining Australia's Security, that you've authored with Professor Joanne Wallace. Can you tell us about the book and what was the catalyst behind it? 
I will certainly be happy to give you a copy of that and sign it if you like. We're, <laughs> Joanne and I, I think, are very excited about the fact that this is coming out into the world. But the catalyst is interesting. Joanne and I, we've done a fair bit of research together. We have collaborated on a few things now, but we were kind of concerned about the tenor of some of the national security conversations and how kind of defence-oriented Australia has become in thinking about national security. And of course, defence is an essential part of national security, but it's not the only part. So, you know, we're sort of talking about reimagining how we perceive national security through the lens of maritime regions. So the book looks at Australia's priorities and relationships across the North Sea, or what we call the North Sea, Um, the Pacific Ocean, Indian Ocean, South China Sea, West Pacific and Southern Ocean. And we're really sort of looking at how Australia approaches these maritime regions, how it conceives of its national security interests in these maritime regions and how it then pursues those interests. And so it sort of gets back to where we started this podcast with this idea of, you know, whether there's a coherent Indo-Pacific and what we find in this book is that, you know, Australia has quite different approaches to these specific regions because these specific maritime regions have these histories, these geographies, these political dynamics. They have their own set of rules and norms that shape and inform what Australia's priorities and relationships are within those maritime regions. And of course, you know, it helps to determine what the, the, the kind of, I guess, the, the fact that these maritime regions are not actually all the same and that we can't necessarily have a one-size-fits-all approach to the Indo-Pacific. So, you know, we're thinking beyond just the threat of China. We are thinking beyond defence when thinking about security. And it goes back to what we've talked about today, you know, environment climate change, human security, economic security, these things are all wrapped up in the maritime. And we advocate for a coherent and comprehensive maritime security strategy, which Australia does not have at the moment. And the reason for doing so, I was reading a piece that you wrote a couple of days ago, I think, Jen, about what is the role of navies. I think if we had a re-examination of maritime security strategy, it might relieve the pressure off navies to be trying to do everything when it comes to the maritime. And, you know, I think you've mentioned a Coast Guard. Well, in terms of things that also require research, I mean, I think we need to really reinvestigate the idea of a Coast Guard. And we couldn't, at the end of our book, really recommend it because there just isn't the research for it. It needs to be a whole specific research project, I think, to now start to investigate whether we need a Coast Guard and how that would fit alongside a comprehensive maritime security strategy for Australia that deals with all of those naval and civil maritime security issues. And the last part about the book is 
It's not just sort of reimagining what security is, but there's a sense of trying to think through what we mean when we say Australia. How are Australia's national interests conceived? How are they produced? Who gets to decide what those interests are? What gets excluded from our dominant discourses when we think about national security? And why does that matter? Particularly when, you know, I think that obviously the shifting balance of power is a significant concern, but things like climate change are existential security threats. And our regional partners in, say, the Pacific are much more concerned about climate change than they are about China. And to some extent, I think we need to be thinking more about climate change as a national security challenge and one that also affects our maritime domains and our relationships within those maritime areas. Well, I'm really looking forward to the book. I think it's an interesting thing and something I've been toying with a little bit recently of when have we actually stepped back and said, is our current structure from a national security standpoint adequate in dealing with the maritime security threats that have evolved? And, you know, when the Royal Australian Navy was formed, Australia's defence and maritime security threats were more focused on, you know, raiders from Russia or Japan, certainly didn't envisage a 200 nautical mile exclusive economic zone, increased reliance on underwater cables, the impact of climate change, et cetera, et cetera. So I do think it is time to rethink some of the assumptions we've made about our structures. And I really look forward to reading your book. Thanks so much. I'm going to have to, unfortunately, wrap things up. It's always wonderful to have you on. I think, actually, when I look back on the statistics of 2023 Saltwater Strategist episodes, the episode where you spoke about the Defence Strategic Review was actually our highest rating episode of the year. Oh, I'm delighted to hear it. <laughs> so you, you are you are obviously a, a popular guest and we'll need to uh, have you on again, perhaps when your book comes out. So thank you so much for your time today and look forward to chatting again in the future. Thanks so much, and I'm always happy to come on the podcast. We want to extend our sincere thanks to Professor Beck Strading, the Director of La Trobe Asia and a prolific writer on maritime issues, for joining us today to talk about maritime challenges in Southeast Asia and the broader Indo-Pacific. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider rating, reviewing and following The Saltwater Strategist wherever you get your podcasts. You can find out more on the Australian Naval Institute website, navalinstitute.com.au, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or sign up to our weekly newsletter via our website. If you're interested in general maritime affairs, why not consider joining the Australian Naval Institute to get special access to timely content and events relating to maritime affairs. A big thank you to our episode sponsor, the organisers of the Australia ASEAN Summit, which is occurring in March 24 and commemorating 50 years of Australia as a dialogue partner of ASEAN. The support of our sponsors is vital to bring you these timely and important discussions on maritime security. I'm Jen Parker. Thanks for listening.